Have you ever heard the expression, there's no there there? Well, let's ask the question, is there there there? That's our podcast from the full service digital storytelling agency, Graphic Machine. I'm Matt Staub. I'm a partner here at Graphic Machine here with the other two partners of Graphic Machine, Brian Jones. Hello. And Patience Jones. Hello. This week, episode 67, the Olympic edition. Boston just made the news by saying, nah, we're not going to do the Olympic thing after all. Figured it wasn't worth the investment to actually attract the Olympics to their city. Summer Olympics in what, 2024 or something was what they were going to be? I think that's right. And so what's up with that decision? Is the sacredness of the Olympics over? Is this the first salvo in standing up to the crazy costs? And what does this mean for the giant advertising market and media market that is the Olympics? Well, it was basically a $8 billion ask that the city of Boston had to come up with to pay for the Olympics. And as with any large major construction project, $8 billion is on the low side because there will be overruns. Greece's Olympics, they had them in 2004, I believe. Didn't really help them very much, did it? No, yeah. but theirs ended up costing, I think, $14 billion, ultimately. Of Christmas so future. It can be an incredibly expensive endeavor for both a country and or a city in particular. That's where Boston said no more. So there's the cost of all the construction. There's also all the costs when the Olympic Committee comes in and says, okay, this thing already exists in your city or it is the way that it is but you have to change it there are those costs so for rio who is as of today scheduled to host the 2016 summer olympics has a really 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 bad water pollution problem they actually have untreated raw sewage that flows directly into their bodies of water the same body of water that the sailing teams and the rowing teams would be in at the beginning of the race you say that like it's a bad thing I mean, you know, glass half empty. Glass half full of sewage. (laughs) Exactly, of hepatitis A. So people who've tested the water independently say it's so bad that if you got some in your eyes, you might become deathly ill, depending on your immune system and exposure. So the Olympic Committee said there are eight of these outlets that dump raw sewage in. Rio, as a condition of you having the Olympics, you have to cap all of them. Like immediately. Rio said, great, great, great. And it has capped one so far. And it costs a ton of money. The water apparently glows neon green at night. That's not going to be fixed overnight or cheaply. So the undercurrent of this is that the costs are hiding all over the place in terms of... Sure. What is the upside then for a city? Obviously, they benefit from tourism and that sort of economic activity. But there has to be other intangible benefits for them to make this kind of crazy investment. What is the value proposition up until now? And what has changed that made Boston tip the other way? I think that cities often use it as a means to develop a portion of their city that maybe had been underutilized for years. They may use it to create mass transit. Atlanta certainly used it for that purpose initially. There may be a desire to sort of announce your city in a more meaningful way for potential foreign investors or for companies that might want to do business in your town. And it's a great, very focused showcase over a period of time. But I think it's a mindset that used to be more true when people were glued to their televisions in a way that we just aren't anymore in the same way. And here I'm going to sound like an 80 year old, but I remember when we were kids and the Olympics would be in places that up until the Olympics, you probably didn't hear of, you weren't familiar with. And so there was value to having the Olympics, to building out the infrastructure, to getting the tourists to go to some place that might have not been on their radar. When you start talking about having the Olympics in places like New York and London and Boston, their tourist economy is pretty good. Those places are pretty well developed. We don't need the Olympics to 
spur any kind of economic development there. But they are susceptible to the same things that all the other cities are susceptible to, and probably more so because of their existing infrastructure that has to be adapted versus creating something new. Do you think that that's part of the decision-making matrix, though? These cities, because they're well-developed, have maybe facilities in place to maybe better accommodate at a very base level, and they have the economic capacity to host these ever-increasingly expensive games? That's always the pitch, but I don't think it bears out in reality. When you talk about New York putting in their bid, they'd mapped out, okay, we can put this event out near LaGuardia, and we can put this event out here, and we can do this. But everything came with, and we'll only have to retrofit it just a little bit, but that little bit is a lot of money. millions of dollars. But then the perception is, well, it's New York. It's got tons of tourists. People will come there. It has a lot of revenue, so it can afford to do this. I don't know that it really can. I don't know that many cities have a chunk of a gajillion dollars just laying around. Security is one of the most expensive components of any Olympics, and it's something can often be a difficult thing to guess how much that's actually going to cost you. Because the scale required for a city to right. scope up to something like this. And just the immediacy of information and the threats that are made all the time. And the argument that while it increases tourism, it kind of turns the city into like a little mini Disney world. Right. Everything purpose-built and not and, very useful afterward. And branded. And so you go and you're not buying clothes that support the local economy. You're buying like the Olympic branded right. t-shirt and the Olympic water and the Olympic what have you. So let's talk about the economics of the larger picture the Olympics are not a profit enterprise, right? They are just an institution. So where do the incentives for these huge investments happen? How do the Olympics perpetuate themselves, basically? NBC, who owns the rights, I think, through forever, um, <laughs> for the games, they pay handsomely for exclusive U.S. rights and digital rights to broadcast the games in any variety of forms that they see fit. So I think that's where the largest source of revenue comes from. There's also all the licensing deals that each of the sponsors makes. And depending on if there's a star, especially from the United States, but also in other parts of the world now, that a company may want to elicit in their campaign, that's an additional source of revenue that has to then get branded. So they get a licensing deal on everything. So do you think that this Boston move is the first chink in kind of removing that mystique? And is there a risk to marketers making these huge investments? Is this mystique going away? And do you see a downside risk now for marketers who are, I'm sure, paying very handsomely to be part of this big Olympic party? I think... Beijing and Russia have kind of been the two that started to really chip away at the image of the Olympics as like this totally positive, pristine, happy thing. Beijing, with the levels of pollution that were there, the risk to the athlete's health, the risk to tourists, and then Russia, where you have pictures of these half-finished vacant buildings with wolves roaming around them and no running water that was the first time when people could see the pictures of the smog, could see the pictures of the wolves, that they started to think, eh, I don't know. I also think we have a much more unvarnished world now yeah. where we hunt for the things that are wrong in a lot of ways. Whereas in the 80s up into the early 90s, I think there was much more of a mindset of showcasing the Olympics in the way that they wanted to be showcased because everybody had such an economic buy-in on this that they only showed the positive side. And now I think there are enough channels that don't have a slice of that pie that are there that are willing to show maybe the underbelly that may have always been there. Mm, interesting. That makes me, I don't know, not sad, but 
you know, you think about like watching them as a kid and interspersed with 600 ads from McDonald's and catalogs about Olympics and gold medalists, whoever on a box of something. But varnish, the the word you use, Brian, I think is perfect because it is this sort of patina of fake perfection. It's like the square part of town where we built a plaza that's absolutely pristine and all these purpose-built facilities that are brand new and publicly financed and debt financed within an inch of their life. And it's not the real experience. The focus seems like it used to be on perfection as demonstrated by the athletes. Athletic perfection, athletic accomplishment, triumphing over the odds. And over time, the focus seems to have gone to the perfection of the place, the perfection of the production, what's being said in the opening ceremonies, you know, what political statements are we making and what does this city look like? The athletes almost seem to be not necessarily second, but at least on even footing. Well, the city kind of becomes the brand of the overall spectacle, right? So mm-hmm. the Olympic brand for each particular games is really heavily tied to the place. I remember one of the first Olympics I watched was Calgary Winter Olympics. And I remember traveling to Calgary for business. Like I think about Olympics and mm-hmm. that's like my association because of that game. Like Lilyhammer, that is a place mm-hmm. we know because of the Olympics. No, I think that's true. I think from an advertiser's perspective, I'd be surprised if it was a net positive for you anymore, especially given the number of channels that you have to connect with your customers that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. And the immediacy of those successes that you can know, the Olympics were a big swing that you got every four to eight years, depending on your ability to pay. And now you don't need that push in the same way always. Don't you think the last vestige of Olympics will be these giant brand awareness sponsors like Coca-Cola, the kind of famous ones? Because even with all these chinks in the armor, there is still a overall probably good feeling. Maybe it's growing increasingly naive good feeling. As most places look at how people buy their products, if there's truly loyalty anymore in buying a product, I think that they will be forced to reevaluate that both in the short and long term. It's going to become increasingly more difficult to have your brand front and foremost in people's minds competing with, oh, that person's boating through raw sewage, or oh, those athletes don't have any running water, or oh, this has decimated the economy of this city and what's going to happen with all of these structures. The more aware we are of the man behind the curtain, the less value I think that brand has in being associated with it. Do you think there's risk in the complicity of someone like NBC who makes a ton of money on this selling those Coca-Cola ads to be part of the varnish machine? Pay no attention to that brown trail behind the rowboats there. That's the water. You know, oh, totally. There, is there a journalistic responsibility, even in just feel-good sports coverage, for them to give an accurate portrayal of what the experience there is like? And is that ever going to happen when it's driven so much by that loving ad dollar? It's hard to be truly objective whenever you have so much financially at stake. The Olympics are really a moment where they hit pause on the news side of things and they become a brochure. A feel-good machine. Yeah, I don't think of them as NBC News covering the Olympics. And I know that that's how they present it. But I think of it as like, it's the NBC special events team, you know, which is, which is way more PR focused. Mm-hmm. And you can guarantee that for Rio, they're going to do tons of little specials on like, oh, the rainforests of Brazil and everything's fine. And look at all these beautiful people and everyone has enough to eat and it's great. 
the inspirational story of how building the Olympic Stadium brought this boy out of poverty or some exactly. bullshit like that. And that's their job. Yeah. Sadly, it's their job. All right. Well, everything's corrupt and the Olympics are teetering on a tenuous peak of false promises and lies. I mean, well, <laughs> I, I would position it. I would position it maybe a little different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I think that this is one of the biggest things that will change in the next 10 years. Yeah. Either by breaking it up into a variety of smaller venue pieces that get spread throughout the world. If you look at the way that shows travel the country, like on Broadway where they tour, Mm -hmm. I think you look at that and you see that as an opportunity to inspire the next generation of athletes by bringing it local and not making it such a come to us sort of thing. I think there's a real opportunity in that. I think too, modeling it after the World's Fair, kind of combination of the World's Fair and the Biennale, you have the Olympics in one place always. You have the same structures always, but cities take turns being the host. And so you can deck out those facilities however you want. You can bring in your own vendors. That becomes your place. But you eliminate all of the extra cost of now we're going to build this pavilion that will be used for two weeks. Well, tune into episode 600 to find out what happens if our predictions were correct (laughs) that this is a moment of change for the Olympics. While you're waiting to get to episode 600, we're going to move on to the next part of the show, which is out there's and there there's. Out there's things that you sent us that we want to share with you or things we found that are cool. And there there's things less cool, things that didn't go great, things that we can hopefully provide some constructive criticism on or just hate on. That may be also true. Let's start with our out there's and there there's this week with PJ. Mine is a there there to the British Home Office because they're denying artist A Way We a visa. They are not letting him into the United Kingdom for him to supervise the installation of his exhibit because they claim that he lied on his immigration visa when he said that he didn't have any criminal convictions. He does not, in fact, have any criminal convictions. He was accused of doing things in China because he's opposed to the communist regime. He was a political prisoner for years, but he's never had a conviction. His case is well known throughout the entire world. Everybody knows that he was a political prisoner. Everybody knows that those charges were fabricated to silence him. And yet the British Home Office says, nope, you have a conviction. You can't come here. And so far they've not commented on the actual documents that show that he has, in fact, no criminal conviction. Is this just a matter of precedent where they can't make a judgment? It's a true or false question and whether it's fabricated or not, they're not at liberty to make that? He doesn't even have a fabricated conviction. Ah. He has charges that were dropped. I see. After years, no conviction. What do you think their problem is? The speculation is that they're trying to curry favor with Beijing by further persecuting him. But I think that that's ridiculous. So come off at British Home Office. I'm sure they're listening. We'll send that over to the the two UK listeners. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We do have two regular UK listeners. Hey, guys, we love you guys. And UK is better than that. And the BBC is all over it. And they're asking the British Home Office to please explain. And British Home Office Mm -hmm. is refusing. Stiff upper lip, calm refusal. Always light and fluffy when it's PJs (laughs) out there or there, there. Brian, what do you... This is a complicated place. It is. Mine is out to KFC. So they have a new product. Oh, no. I <laughs> What next? First of all, let's put a quick there there to Yum Brands, who refuses to put these amazingly awesome things in this country and only does them in other parts of the world. That's my there there. Yeah, right? but we have hot dog 
crust pizza in no, the United States. it's not even worth that. <laughs> so in Canada, our neighbors to the north, for the 60th anniversary of KFC in Canada, they have created a KFC bucket filled with chicken that is also a printer for your photo that you can take while you're eating your said chicken. <laughs> okay. Uh, My life is complete. <laughs> I, have a, I, have I don't picture. even know what that means. I don't. There's a. How does that? It looks like it a joke. It has a little printer. Yes. This is not the onion. No. It literally is, has a little slot. We'll post, of course, on the show page this image, but. It's the memories bucket. So it has a little. <laughs> for reals. It literally has a slot that kicks out a little photograph. Put your right. memories in the bucket. Okay, so not to get all technical, but then do you connect to it to send your photo to it? It does have a Bluetooth connector. Yes. <laughs> so what's the cost to manufacture that? My guess is it's not cheap. Is I assume a, that this is not something they're putting on every KFC. It's and bucket of chicken will cost you $85. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. guessing it's a select view or something that's sort of a, more of a gimmick. But uh, yeah. We could be in Winnipeg by nightfall. <laughs> <laughs> but, get some chicken. but again, oh Yum Brands, come on. Do something in the US. You owe it to us. You are like the sage of bizarre, overly wrought, <laughs> expensive packaging. Yes. I would love to have been at the meeting where all the ideas were discussed and that was the one that came out on top. Well, that is amazing. Also, you imagine your hands oh, yeah. with chicken grease and grabbing said photo. Well, it's and what has be to awesome. be in the bucket to separate? Because the bottom of the bucket's always greasy. Like, sure. what do you do to separate that from the printer component? Yeah, it looks like and the printer's exterior. That's Also, good. you're losing precious chicken space in there. I think it's all conspiracy for you to get less chicken. I mean, like, we'll just that put a printer in the bottom. <laughs> Take up some of the chicken volume. We're losing our ass on the chicken prices. I don't eat chicken anymore, but I will say that KFC in Canada, vastly superior to KFC in the U.S. Well, I think that's most food, like fast food places. Think about your association with Tim Hortons. Maybe I'm just nostalgic for my time in Canada. The chicken actually tastes different. Like, I think there's a different recipe that they use or Mm. something. I don't know. It's way better. This still doesn't compete with the double down sandwich, which is chicken with chicken buns, I believe. It's like chicken with fried chicken buns. Or Correct. Some yeah. of this bizarre yum. pile of chicken. Like Yum Brands is just becoming famous for ridiculous menu items. Like but here we are. Hot dog crust pizza. Yep. <laughs> it really working. is kind of like if Marcel Duchamp opened a fast food restaurant, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> what would this be? <laughs> like, I, I think I'm going to open a bar called Duchamp's. <laughs> yes. I it's like a it. slushy and also a toilet. <laughs> yes. yes. It's art because I said so. All right. Well, mine is kind of a combo, as is my want of out there's and there there's. It's about a book, generally, that I actually haven't read yet. I'm just starting called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's by a journalist by the name of John Bronson, who is a frequent contributor to some podcasts and radio shows. He's Welsh, so he's very pleasant to listen to. He had a parody account on Twitter, which was basically a spam bot making up all these inane comments. And he was sick of it. So a lot of people that are famous have these. I even have a parody Twitter account, I'm told. And I'm not famous. (laughs) But he didn't want to settle for it. He mobilized his own network to kind of call them out and shut them down. Through that process, he kind of went through this whole study of what is this phenomenon with publicly shaming or publicly harassing people where in the old days you actually had to turn up to be a pain in someone's butt and now you can destroy someone's life in a mob mentality on Twitter. And some of the examples are like the Justine Sacco example where she had tweeted what was 
obviously a joke, but not a very good one. She's not funny. I'm not defending her comedy, but she tweeted right before getting on a flight to Africa, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, LOL, just kidding, I'm white, which is obviously some commentary on white privilege. It's not really as abrasive as it is on its face, but Twitter got a hold of it, made a public shaming of her. There's a hashtag, has Justine landed yet? Her agency that she worked for basically was saying she's on a flight, so we can't fire her yet, but as soon as she lands. And so it was this huge mob mentality. It trended worldwide for one tweet that was tone deaf and not funny, but obviously not blatantly racist like everyone took it is at least how I interpret it. And the idea that that could happen to anyone and that this mob mentality is crazy and out of control is kind of scary. And the reason this came up is this whole lion thing, this Minnesota dentist who's crazy and it was tragic and stupid, killed this lion on a protected space in Zimbabwe. Was that where it was? The whole internet is completely angry. That's fine because it's really tragic and it's terrible. But the things that we're not angry about, there's tons of tragedy and we don't notice. We need very simple, tidy mob mentality things to follow. Justine Sacco was an example, this dentist. He's an idiot, but he probably doesn't deserve his entire life destroyed because of being an idiot. I don't know. Maybe he does. I think he does. All right. Well, that's fine. But (laughs) the mob mentality is just everything is out of proportion in terms of our outrage because of how tidy and bite-sized it is. I mean, I think that it's an inevitability of people getting distracted easily. But I do think that in both the examples that you cite, it was appropriate because both seem to be like a afterthought commentary and they had very specific things. And I think that that more than anything is what tends to incite people into rage anymore is when it's like, I said this off the cuff thing and it was no big thing to me. And that ended up being something that was really painful for other people. It's just not acknowledging that we live in that world and you can have that thing and that your actions do matter and the things that you say do matter. I agree with you that there's a tendency to overreact to things and that the mob mentality is out of control. But what I would take away from it is you have to be better. And sometimes even being better isn't enough. And you still get called out for things that are unfair and cast you in an unfair light. Well, I think the audience needs to be better as well. I don't want to live in a world where someone with a bad sense of humor like Justine Sacco can't tell a bad joke. I think that's a dangerous precedent if we're going to create a mob over everyone's Well, I mean, I think it's an inevitability, though, of just people being interconnected with one another. I'll be curious, as you go through the book, whether your opinion of Justine Sacco changes, because he follows up with her at different points in the book. I'm sure she's a terrible... I'm not sympathetic to her, but I don't think she deserved what she got. I'll keep you posted. (laughs) In most cases, that tweet would have just passed on by as one bad, off-color joke. I think people also held her to a higher standard because she was a marketing Yeah, she was a PR professional, so... And that, you know, people sort of thought like, well, maybe an average person wouldn't have seen how this could be misconstrued, but she should have known better because that's her career. Yeah. We'll see what the next mob mentality is. Hopefully, it's not something we said on today's show. If it is, we apologize. Directed at Matt. That's right. Directed at me. We're going to stop saying potentially incendiary things now, so you can call off the mob because that was episode 67 and it's over for all the stuff we talked about you can check out our show page graphicmachine.com slash ittt if you would like to complain there you're welcome to you can also hit us up on twitter and start a trending hashtag at graphic machine is our agency at their podcast is our show you can email us with your thoughts and ideas for future shows 
ITTT at graphicmachine.com. And for every page, there's a Facebook thread. So if you want to come chat with us about what we talked about and offer your opinion, we'd love to see you there. Facebook.com slash graphicmachineinc is where you can find those. I think that's it. So in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.